Dialogic Disciple is an invitation to explore discipleship in dialogue with the world as disciples of the Word. I'm honored to have a good friend of mine and a former professor, Dr. Brent Strawn, uh, with us today here at the Dialogic Disciple Podcast. Brent is an Old Testament theology professor at Duke University. I'm sure you have a, a bigger title than that, a more fancy <laughs> professional title than that. But Brent, how are you doing today? Welcome to the podcast. I'm doing good, James. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate being here. What is uh, now? You were you were at Emory University for a while, for 18 years, a long 18 time. Years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, now you've moved up to Duke. How's how's North Carolina treating you? North Carolina is good so far. I've been here uh, just a little bit over a full year, so it's my uh, and I was on sabbatical actually for part of the first year, so I'm really only in my second semester of teaching, but uh, so far so good, and we're enjoying a little change of pace in the uh, smaller uh, uh, area, less less populated than Metro Atlanta, and so my commute is a little a little easier. We'll just say that, uh, but uh, but I miss uh, the great things about Atlanta, great things about Emory, lots of good friends and good memories from the time down there. It'll take it'll take a long time before I feel like I belong up here, like I felt like I belong down there. Sure, sure, sure. Um, you are a, a former, or not? I don't know, if former or not former, but you you are Nazarene. Uh, grew up Nazarene, just like me. So I did. I did, and I am former because I'm uh, ordained uh, UMC North Georgia Conference. You made the jump. You made the jump. I did. I did. I did. They, I was. I, I may have been captured. It might have been a. Might have been a <laughs> capture kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's funny. I remember my uh, my professor at Southern Nazarene telling me that if I went to a, a Methodist seminary that I would end up becoming Methodist and I said uh, at the yeah. time, I was like that's unbelievable I can't I, I'll never do that and yet here yeah. I am well they told me that too only I went to a Presbyterian seminary and actually I just <laughs> I proved them wrong for 25 years or so, so, <laughs> held out, so I, held out. I, I think I probably won that one ordained and I was ordained Nazarene in 2002 and then I guess switched over uh, to Methodist Church in 2013. I think it was. Do you uh, have you been back? I know that your your book, The Old Testament Is Dying, which is a fantastic book, um, was was originally a lecture series at uh, NTS Nazarene Theological Seminary. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Do you still have um, connections with the with the denomination with Nazarene Church? Yeah, I mean, not not tons of formal ones, but. Um, just in in February, before uh, the virus kind of got out of hand, uh, my alma mater, which is Point Loma Nazarene University in San Diego, had me out to give their Wiley lectures, uh, and so that was a blast and a real high point to go back to my alma mater and give lectures that I attended as a student. You know, I remember yeah. certain per- certain people coming through and giving those lectures, and there I was giving them, and that was a, a blast. And uh, my dad got to come out and and be with me too, so that was fun. Um, but but it's it's mostly a little bit of hit or miss like that. The, the NPS lectures, I was actually not their first choice to be honest. <laughs> they had someone else uh, in line and they couldn't do it, and so they needed someone quick, and they called me, and um, I was happy to do it. And then the the that particular lectureship at Nazarene Seminary is under contract with Baker uh, Publishers, and so Baker Academic then once I gave the lectures, reviewed the manuscript, and then accepted it for publication in this series that that Andy Johnson, the New Testament professor out there, runs. Yeah. Yeah. I remember uh, Andy came to see us at uh, SNU a couple times. Uh, while oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, Brent, I, I'm glad. Thank you for taking the time to to join us on the podcast today, and uh, really just want to have a conversation with you about some of the, the the climate that I feel like most congregations uh, are in right now, particularly mm-hmm. here in the United States and um, here in Atlanta, um, here in the South. Uh, you're still part of the South, even though you're out of the Atlanta. That's right. That's right. Um, we have a lot that's been going on. A lot of people experiencing uh, anxiety and stress and even grief. Um, with big world events like the pandemic, uh, the coronavirus pandemic, and just come through some very contentious elections. 
uh, a lot of uh, racial, social injustice stuff being addressed, uh, and, and just a lot of uncertainty uh, in the mm-hmm. world right now. Mm-hmm. And as Christians, we're we're trying to figure out how how to number one, how do we deal with that uh, ourselves? You know, how do we do that personally, or how do we do that as congregations? But also, what kind of what kind of uh, beacon or what kind of example should we be setting for for the world as the church in times like these? And I know that your focus and expertise is in the Old Testament. And, and one of the things that I've I have found in, in my uh, my life in the church is that a lot of times Christians will run to the New Testament first and they and they mm-hmm. sometimes just leave out the Old Testament altogether. And one of the things that I learned from you, as well as um, other Old Testament professors, is that really to understand what's going on in the New Testament, you got to understand the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And there's a real richness and, and depth to our faith and resources uh, in the Old Testament that um, that that bring bring so much more color and and mm-hmm. to our faith and, and bring just a, a, a richer life uh, together as a people, as a congregation, as a church, and, and as individual Christians. So, all of that said, I, I uh, want to have a conversation with you about um, how how the Old Testament, uh, what the Old Testament might have to tell us and, and say to us. Um, and I know the Old Testament is very broad, and we're talking about mm-hmm. many different traditions coming together. But just as a way to start off our conversation, uh, have you been, as you've been going through all of these kind of uncertainties and, and dealing with, uh, I'm sure, congregations yourself and with students there at Duke, what are some of the things that you've been able to draw from the Old Testament? Or what are some of the things you think the Old Testament might have to say to us as congregations, as churches, as Christians? It's a big book and it's a lot of resources. Um, and, you know, just as a starting point, I would I would encourage Christians to be people of the book. I mean, uh, Christianity is a book religion, maybe more, but it's certainly not less than that. Uh, but in truth, I think this is the subject of my Old Testament is Dying book. In truth, North American Christianity seems to me to be frequently disturbingly less than a religion of the book <laughs> sort of forgotten the book and is interested in all sorts of things which may or may not be related to the book um what do you but, what do you mean by that what's uh what are some of the well, things out there uh i think just that that the average christian person doesn't actually spend much time thinking about scripture or thinking of scripture as a real resource for their life um in the world full of pandemics and social injustice and whatnot. I mean, I think that that at least in the kind of Christian circles with which I'm most familiar being raised and ever since, um, scripture is um, used in a more utilitarian way and it's mostly in the individualistic sort of way and personal piety, religiosity, and it sort of breeds the kind of religion that thinks that uh, pastors shouldn't get political, you know, from the pulpit or whatever, as if the Bible itself isn't just <laughs> full, full of politics uh, of various sorts. So, um, so I think, I think that my concern is that, you know, as I say in that book, that, that the language of, of, of faith as encapsulated in Christian scripture is a dying language. It's an endangered language. Um, and that's, you know, not just, the fault of individual Christians. I mean, we have to be candid and say the fault of it is lays with clergy as well, who don't always train people to read or care about scripture in, in, in larger ways. It's fault lays with seminary professors like me who, who maybe train clergy in erroneous ways or unhelpful ways. But, um, but it's, but, but because scripture is such a big, deep and rich resource, um, we shouldn't be surprised to find all all matter of, of important um, stuff in there to help us in our time of need and in our times of joy as well. But, you know, I lately I've been thinking about a line from um, Walter Brueggemann, one of my favorite uh, Old Testament scholars, and he's got a little book on, on the virus and uh, biblical faith. And in it, he notes sort of in passing, but not really in passing because it's really part of his his basic MO in, in his massive corpus of writings. I don't know how many books he's published, hundreds. Um, he says, you know, every crisis is a way or a means or a, 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 a need to reread the Bible with fresh eyes. So every, every crisis 
says, oh, we go back to the book, not that we go back to our favorite political you know, political pundit or our favorite, you know, news outlet or our favorite, you know, movie star or artist or whatever. But but we go back to the book and read the Bible and read it with fresh eyes because now we have new questions in mind, new things that might might spark us. So as I think about, you know, on the one hand, COVID and the other hand, uh, sort of the ongoing struggle for racial equality, you know, I've come back to, and when I've been asked, questions like this in the past several months, you know, I've been coming back to a triad of, of three books, um, which we can explore further as you want. But one is the Psalms, another is the book of Amos, and the third is uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, and for different reasons. just finished a, a series here at the church um, on the wisdom literature and and dive into it. And we actually started it just like in January. So right before the pandemic hit. And as we were getting into the, the heart of the pandemic, we were we were wrestling with Ecclesiastes. And um, I, the, the way that people responded in the sense of like, wow, this is really helpful, particularly during this time. Um, it was something that, uh, that really stood out to me. It, you, you said that folks have, have come to you and, and talked to you about this and um, that these three books uh, have, have jumped out to you. What, what is it about these three books that have jumped out to you? Right. Well, the, um, I think in the um, terms of the Psalms, of course, the Psalms are a great repository, not only of the praise of God, but actually more, more dominantly than the praise of God, the, the expression of sorrow and grief to God, anger, disappointment. Um, so the, the great lament tradition, the grief tradition, the sorrow and disappointment with life and with God, tradition, that, yeah. that's in the Psalms. And that seems to me to be to strike an emotional chord or resonate with current emotional, you know, states. states. Psalms that jump out to you in that, in that sense? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, any of the great lament psalms, I mean, 13 is a good little pithy example. 22, which is quoted from the cross. Um, yeah. 88, which is 88, yeah. really, really, really sad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> others, you know, as well that are, are quite tragic, um, but also that contain almost invariably, not invariably, because 88 is an exception, but, but also move. To the praise of God at the end at, at the end of them, like Psalm 22 does or 13 does. So that's one piece, the grief piece and the sorrow or articulation of disappointment. Um, but then as a subcategory of the lament psalms, those cursing psalms um, that curse one's enemies, um, that, that demand justice for wrongdoing is a kind of particularly important subcategory of the lament psalm tradition these seem to me to be um, quite on point too, in terms of say, uh, racial injustice and the desire that so many have to, to set the record straight and that those who have been um, unjust get their just desserts. I mean, that's, that is not, the one time in class I was lecturing on the Victoria Psalms and um, Psalm 137 was the one I think I was talking about, and that's that famous one that talks about, uh, oh, Babylon, you devastator, happy is the one who takes your little ones and dashes them yes. against the rock. Yes. And I was kind of asking this class what they thought, and a student raised her hand and she said, well, two wrongs don't make a right, you know. But that's to misunderstand the, the imprecatory psalms, the cursing psalms. The cursing psalms aren't a wrong. The cursing psalms are begging for God to, 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 to enact justice. And justice is never a wrong. Justice is a sublime virtue of our Lord, according to Scripture, <laughs> one of the highest of the virtues. And so, um, so it's not a matter of two wrongs make a right. It's actually a serious wrong has been done, and it's time to set the record straight. So the imprecatory psalms help us. Now, a lot of, like, you know, middle-class white people like me uh, may not feel right about, you know, racial injustice. Of course we don't, because we're people of white privilege. Um, right. So of course we don't feel that. But but that doesn't mean reading the imprecatory Psalms can't help us, because it can. It can remind us there are people in the world who feel this way, you know, right. and who feel this way about me, you know, or, or, or who I am, or, or where I come from, or what demographic I belong to. And that starts hitting close to home, because then I think to myself, how can I live differently 
so that I not only am sensitive to people who might pray such a psalm, but also be sensitive to living differently so they no longer pray that kind of psalm against me. Um, and then, of course, there's other ways we can use the imprecatory psalms, I and mean, we can we can use them to define our enemies broadly and figuratively. I mean, this isn't just Babylon; it's 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 racism, it's it's uh, it's economic disparity, it's cancer, um, yeah. it's it's any number of things. It's vice, it's sin, it's the sin I can't overcome on my own. This is the, these these are the enemies that I hope God will damn and right. and and damn completely and thoroughly and rescue me. And, and, you know, so, so that, that tradition, the, the Psalm tradition in terms of grief and sorrow, but also rage, I think both of those are really important. It seems to me that we uh, have a little bit of uncomfortability expressing things like that, particularly when we get close to, to um, some of those lament Psalms that aren't as praising of God as we're used to hearing the Psalms go. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they do express maybe even some violence that, that makes some of us uncomfortable. Um, what is it right. about, what is it about us now that it seems like it, they were very comfortable doing this in the times of the old Testament and the Psalms mm-hmm. aren't the only place where we see language like that in scripture. Um, why right. is it that we have this kind of uh, reticence, uh, hesitation to, to use this kind of language when it's part of our scriptural tradition like what is it about us now yeah well i think it's 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 no doubt um um, many things but if i go back to this old testament dying book that i i wrote uh i i use an analogy of language um there that the bible's like a language we can learn well or not and uh what's interesting in studies of human language is that um if a if an adult lang if an adult learns a new language, uh, they often don't learn it very well. They yeah. they don't learn it as well as a, as a as a child would someone who's brought up in the language. So adult language acquisition can be um, you know apocopated. It can be you know mm-hmm. deficient, inadequate, and I I suspect that what we have in lots of cases is that, is inadequate language acquisition, that we haven't acquired the full language of scripture. What we've acquired is certain bits, the bits that kind of speak to Jesus in me, or that make me feel good about myself, or that I'm accepted, or that I can be brave, or that God loves me. And all that stuff is true. That's in the Bible too. But so is the stuff that God sometimes doesn't like me, especially if I'm sinning or <laughs> and I'm un- unjust. Therefore, God God doesn't like, and that Jesus, for that matter, doesn't like me either, because Jesus has a whole lot of things that are right in hand and glove with the justice of God, as expressed elsewhere in Scripture, including the Old Testament. And then also that God has other things that God's worried about besides my personal benefit and well-being and. And, uh, you know, and if I feel good about myself, my ego strength, you know, (laughs) so inadequate, inadequate and incomplete language acquisition uh, is one way to look at it. Another way is that the, is that the great language of scripture, the full language, as it were, is becoming reduced in linguistic terms. That's called pigeonized. It just gets reduced to a simple, unnuanced shadow of its full self. And when that's the case, when you get it in real languages, when language pigeonized like this, you lose all kinds of nuance. You can't express verb tenses in the same way you used to. You can't you can't talk about a house the same way that you used to be able to talk about a house or the human body because you've lost words, you've lost verb forms, et cetera. And this is what I think is the case with so many Christian communions. We don't they don't they lack nuance. So we can only say things like God is love and that expresses everything we need to know about God when of course it doesn't <laughs> because God's a lot more things than just love. Right. How do I know? Because at least according to scripture, that's what scripture says. And I've, I've read scripture. So, <laughs> so I think right. that's the, the cavalier. I don't mean to be cavalier about it, but I think no, that's, that's, that's true, part right. of it. Right before we got on, I was I was doing a class on First Corinthians, and we actually covered the love chapter, you know, First Corinthians thirteen, which is very popular. People love that chapter, yeah. and I was just expressing literally that you know the English word for love is so thin compared to what the Greek, even the Greek, you know, not yeah, even, that's right. Um, do you think that 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 
kind of that pigeoning that happens and, and that that lack of nuance is that a lack of just immersion i know that i know that they say the best way to learn a language is just to immerse yourself in the people in the yeah. culture and yeah. not doing that with scripture that's one of my favorite parts of that book by the way is is to talk about scripture in the bible hebrew bible as uh, as a language and learning a new language i think that's a great like metaphorical way of talking about the engagement and we don't immerse ourselves in right. The, the language or the or the culture the right no I think that I think that is an issue and I mean I I want to be um, I want to be uh, realistic I don't I don't think that everybody is going to become you know a Bible scholar or whatever like that but but that doesn't mean that that lay people non-professionals as it were non-ordained people can't become expert in their bibles or know their bibles very well you know people in your life no doubt lay people who've been um, have had excellent command of scripture i i have um, and they they aren't people who hold phds in bible and for that matter i i know people who hold phds in bible who aren't necessarily great christians right? so, i mean it's, <laughs> it it's not ways. like it you know it goes both ways but um I, would, I, bet, I bet you and I do what we do as far as studying scripture because we knew we had those people in our life. Yeah, didn't. I think that's right. I think that's right. And language immersion is part of it. I mean, and that's just that's a practice of cracking it open and reading it. It's not necessarily a matter of taking formal courses on it. Um, that might help, too. But, um, you know, I mean, the language immersion and being a part of the language community that sh that shares the language. I mean, this is. Sunday schools, this is small groups, this is family practices, this is also daily devotional practices. That's why I read the daily office uh, every day, um, trying to, to make sure I have a healthy balance of scripture um, before me, not just the Old Testament, which is my first love, but, um, but the New Testament as well. And that makes the church, the church is supposed to be this too, and that's what's all more tragic when so many churches really aren't. Um, language communities about scripture per se, um, but something else. So you, you came here to Northside a few years ago and did a series on Jonah. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So and one of the things that, uh, one of the things I hear back from the people who took that class more often than not, uh, sadly, probably nothing about Jonah, but one of the things that, one of the things <laughs> that you said, I think early on in, in the first session was uh, kind of a method of reading scripture where the first step is you read it, the second step. Yeah. And then the third step is you read it again. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That that really stuck with some people. Oh, here. good, good. They bring it up. They bring it up all the time. Nice, yeah. Bible study. So um, I think that that's, uh, it gets read. hard. Read, yeah. it. read it, read it slowly. Keep reading and reread. That's the four. I, I got four now. And, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the first step is just read it. It's not it's not brain science, you know what I mean? Or brain surgery or something like that. So that that if we did, if we do read it, I think we would know. I mean, if we just read the Psalms, you know, you have to read like three Psalms in before you hit a first lament Psalm. I mean, you don't even have to go very far right. <laughs> before you go. Oh my gosh, look at this! The righteous don't always thrive. Um, you know, the the righteous aren't always like a leaf that everything they do succeeds. You know, oh wow, the the, the wicked are thriving. Uh, you keep you keep going, and you find out that the only people in the Psalms who are happy all the time are the wicked. You know what I mean? So right, yeah, you know, righteous people shouldn't expect to be happy and satisfied and pleased all the time not because they've read the psalms they know this so so reading it is really a crucial thing and so the psalms help me that amos you know amos is just a stunning you know articulation of 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 social justice i mean the to me, Amos is the, uh, you know, our most articulate prophet of doom in the Bible. And I mean, Eri Amos, it could have been written last week, you know, what I mean? it's just, <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, about social disparity and everything else. And, um, you know, how, you know, everything's going well for some people, but not for everybody. And, um, and Amos is concerned about everybody. And so is the God of Amos and the God who calls Amos. So Amos is just this stunning prophet of doom, and you got—you cannot be a speaker of scripture. And in, so, in my sense, my understanding, you can't be really a, a person who speaks Christian faith without being able to speak about God's judgment. And Amos is maybe the quintessential articulation of God's judgment in the Bible. Amos is actually the very first book I ever studied. It was a book that we did in our intro to uh, 
Old Testament theology um, or biblical literature, I think, is Intro to Biblical Literature at, at Southern Nazarene University. Name nice. where we started. Um, and uh, I, I, can, I can agree with you more as far as um, the way that it, it, it the message that it, it has for us. Like you said, it could have been written last week. Right, right. Um, in, in, in particular, with the book uh, of Amos, you know, people here in Atlanta are going to be going to be very familiar with some of the passages out of Amos. You know, with the some of the, some of Martin Luther King's favorite passages were there, right, right. There in Amos, uh, and he definitely saw, you know, Martin Luther King saw his his uh, quest for social equality through the lens of Amos. What are what are some of the other things you think that we could pull from Amos now, you know, particularly that might be helpful? Well. I mean, that's one of the main things. I mean, I think Amos, along with the other 8th century prophets, just broadens the moral horizon in remarkable ways. I mean, again, if you were raised like I was uh, in in a lot of the Christian circles I've, I've moved in, um, morality is largely kind of a matter of personal piety and, and things right. like things you do or do not do yourself and mostly do not do. Don't drink, don't smoke. Don't you? Don't go go with girls who do, right? I mean, these, these are the these, these are some of the things that's that the Nazar- mark. That's the Nazarene creed, as I recall. Yeah, it's the, the holiness, <laughs> the holiest thing, and the and the holiness thing isn't all wrong, but um, but there's more to it than just that. There's a social holiness, um, holiness worked out in the social sphere, as it were, manifesting within the community of faith. So when and, we read uh, when we read Amos now, we're we're reading it with that lens, that personal piety lens, and kind of internalizing it on a personal way and instead of thinking about it as a social, maybe even a congregational or national way. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? I think so. I think so. And then also it, it just reveals that uh, there's certain things that just can't be solely understood as personal. I mean, when, when Amos talks about the frustration of justice for the poor in kind of courts, um, well, I'm not a judge, right? I mean, what, how does that apply to me? Um, so I can kind of write that off, but you you can't write off. It's that too is a part of of sort of the moral horizon, and so things that that churches are sometimes want to bifurcate, you know, sort of this personal piety or or holiness, as it were, and then this social engagement. You know, churches kind of fall into one or two of those camps, and Amos is an example of how they can't you can't pick one of those camps They're, they go together. And in fact, that great line from chapter five that MLK cites, um, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness, like an ever, ever flowing stream. What's, what's fascinating about that line and in, or one of the fascinating things about that line, I should say, is how those terms justice and righteousness um, capture these two aspects. I mean, justice really is in the prophets, this social, communal, political uh, righteousness that marks the can mark, that must mark the social sphere. And then this this other words, righteousness, tzedakah uh, in Hebrew, that that can really refer to the can refer to the, the interior life and the personal life um, of the of the of the of the Israelite within within the the larger um, community. And so both aspects go together, justice and righteousness. And in this line of poetry, they're placed in poetic parallelism. That's yeah. how that's how closely they go together. So Amos early on in the book, he's not only mad at the fact that 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 uh, you know the poor get sold for a pair of sandals, but also that that a man and his son have relations with the same girl. I mean, so so there's personal sexual transgressions that he's mad about or that God's mad about, and also social inequities, um, selling the poor for a, a pair of sandals. Both of justice and righteousness go together. And, you know, so often mainline churches have fallen into the justice camp and sometimes ignored the holiness stuff. And then you got these evangelical wings that fall into the holiness camp and ignore the justice. And Amos just shows you can't, you can't just favor one. You got to have both. They, they go together. It's like a line of poetry. I've heard I've heard somebody saying I'm a, this might even be from you I don't know I don't remember I don't recall where this comes from but at some point in my life I heard some Old Testament professor say uh, that you can think of righteousness as having like right relationship with God like on that mm. maybe piety kind of way yeah yeah uh, justice is right relationship with with human beings or with neighbors mm. so you can yeah have yeah justice righteousness the the two commandments that Jesus highlights right yeah I like it yeah God and love the neighbor. Um, but they, yeah. they go together. You can't have one without the other. Right. They're reflected too, I guess, in the in the in the, the 
the Decalogue and the Ten Commandments, you know, yeah. and, and starting as this uh, God with God and ending with the neighbor. So, so I think Amos really shows us both things. And um, and Amos, you know, this this summer I was doing a, a series um, on Amos, and what struck me more than it had before, perhaps, is um, you know I do think that there's a real sense in which the word of God in scripture has to be seen as, um, must be seen, it's best seen as first and foremost, a word to the community of faith. And so for our purposes, the Christian church as grafted into the story of Israel, as Paul puts it in Romans. So, you know, Amos is in first and foremost, a word against the United States of America. Right. It's first and foremost, a word against the church in its failure to be the people of God. but that being said, um, the book of Amos and, and scripture writ large shows that that church, that community of faith lives within a larger world, a larger polis. And God has great concerns about that. And, um, you know, you could, you could view that or talk about it in different ways, but at least in Amos, you know, Amos begins with a series of oracles where, where God is judging other nations for their wrongdoing right. and then zeroing in on, on the people of God. So it really is a both and it really is a both and, but I think, uh, I think sometimes people, this kind of goes back to your question about the cursing Psalms. I think sometimes we ignore some of these things in scripture for a whole host of reasons. One of which has to do with our own level of, uncomfortableness with the judgment of God and that that could possibly fall on me. It's right. easier to project it onto somebody else or something else. And I don't feel that way, or I'm not guilty of that or, or whatever. Um, I don't have violent proclivities or I've never felt that, you know, rage like that in my heart. Um, and it's just not true. Of course <laughs> we, yeah. we have. And in the, and in the case of the Psalms, that it's captured that rage and, and whatnot is captured within the bounds of prayer, which is very different yeah. than in the bounds of say, uh, arguing face to face with our enemy at a, at a rally, at a political wow. rally or, uh, arguing on Facebook or Twitter or in church for heaven's sake. <laughs> it, 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 it. In that first part of Amos, where he does that circular thing where he's zero and you know, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, the idea that you the kind of sense you get where Israel is probably like cheering along, right? They're like, yeah, yeah, we don't like them, you know, and he gets all the way yeah. down, like or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, and and Amos kind of setting up Israel, right, to, to be like to be the that's right, butt of a joke, right. right? Where where that's right, it's actually about you, that's right. What, what you said a minute ago, um, that that this is first and foremost a, a word to the church rather than to like the United States of America. I think that's, mm -hmm. that's fascinating to me um, in a sense, especially when you think of particularly here in the South, a lot of times people convolute those two things, right? The United right, States right. Christian nation. Right. Um, I don't know if you, if you have anything that you might want to say that help us kind of distang distangle those two things. Yeah, well, I mean, you just don't have to think very hard about the history of our country to say, you know, to realize it's 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 not a Christian nation, or or it hasn't acted, it hasn't acted uh, according to what we would think are the best, highest standards of the Christian life. You know, I, I that's just, you know, I, I I can see people, I can understand people who are wishful thinkers. I really can, but it's. Uh, but you know you have to be honest about things too. Right. <laughs> and, and uh you know it's it's one thing to be wishful thinker it's another thing to project onto other people and it's another thing to be sober-eyed about the history of the church which is pockmarked and um ugly uh and also beautiful i mean it has it has wonderful moments too uh but it's just um you know sin is a big deal and it's uh, that's something that the reformed tradition taught me as I went to seminary is something that I never really realized as well in my upbringing as I did after attending uh, reform seminary for three years because sin is a big monster and it's very hard to get away from it um and uh you know we're not going to get away from it in our own power um it's it's only 
the gift of God and the power of the Spirit that can deliver us from those sorts of things. And that's something that the Wesleyan tradition taught me. We like to talk about grace more than we like to talk about sin, but that's right. That's right. So sin. Don't really understand what grace is if you don't understand what. That's sin. right. That's right. That's right. So, um, so I just think that uh, again, who who this who is Scripture written for in its original context? It's written for the people of God. I mean, it's not the Ten Commandments aren't aren't written for the the Assyrians. It's not like let's write the Ten Commandments and go post them in Assyria in like an Assyrian <laughs> law court. The Assyrians right. worship Marduk. Of course, they're not going to post you know, the, the Ten Commandments of the Lord God of Israel in their courtroom. I mean, they don't care about the Lord God of Israel. Israel cares about the Lord God of Israel. Israel is the one who's supposed to uh, be faithful to the Lord and all that jazz. So so um, the, the scripture in its original iteration to the people of Israel in the Old Testament and to the early Christian communities in the New Testament, uh, early Jewish communities in, in many regards, you know, that's, that's first and foremost a word to the community of faith. And should be heard as such. And I think, again, sometimes our, our attempt, well-meaning or not, to instantly apply it to our communities, our, sec- our, our larger political realm, is actually a move too quick to pass it on to someone else rather than yeah. hear it for ourselves. And so, again, it's a move of projection. It's like this word wasn't meant for me. You know, it's, it's, it's a word for someone else. Um, so this, and I this, just, you know, that's, that, that doesn't work, I don't think, according to how Scripture was originally formulated. This issue that that you're bringing up here, I think, is exactly why I think the Old Testament is so important for Christians uh, to absorb and to immerse themselves in. Because the way that I the way that I see uh, the way that I see evangelism, let's say, working in the Old Testament is about is about truly um, developing the community of Israel and and, ma- and maturing it, disciplining it, and and becoming that beacon, you know, the the city on the mm-hmm. hill, uh, as Jesus mm-hmm. said. Uh, okay. And so that you're drawing people to you, whereas I think evangelism in most contemporary churches is seen as like going out and, and preaching the gospel or going out and, and, and imposing, uh, you know, the Ten Commandments mm-hmm. or whatever else mm-hmm. onto other societies or other other cultures or other people. Um, and I, I feel like the Old Testament has a corrective about that. And, and I think that Jesus mm-hmm. himself makes this point about uh, the Old Testament way of doing things, like when he's talking mm-hmm. about a city on a hill things like right, that right but right. because we don't have that access to the old testament or we don't we don't sit with it enough we don't mm-hmm. read it enough we we miss that nuance in jesus's language right i mean yeah, I think yeah that's right i think the corporate aspects of of the of faith are present throughout scripture but they're just sort of harder to miss in the old testament than they are in the new testament because we're accustomed to a way of reading or hearing the new testament that does sort of present it as an individualistic thing Whereas it's just hard to get around the corporate nature of the people of God in, in the Old Testament. Um, but that's that that corporate nature. I mean, the, the kahal, the assembly in Hebrew, that's translated in the Greek is as ecclesia. You know, I mean, I, that's one of the translations is the church. That's the, the term of the, the gathered community that's used in the New Testament. So that's the Amos piece. If we want to go to Ecclesiastes for a minute. Yeah, I was going to say, look, please break down Ecclesiastes for us, because this was one of <laughs> well, the difficult books to kind of wrestle yeah, with uh, yeah. in, the, in the Scripture, really. And yeah, people yeah. ask me questions I have no answer to. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not an Old Testament scholar, but... Uh, yeah. But uh, I'm like an amateur Old Testament scholar in a sense. But, no, no, you're good. But this you're book good. is, I think, fascinating and uh, troubling, and really, I think, speaks to um, speaks to the, the issues that we were talking about before. But just like this, right. this fundamental sense of existential crisis, almost. Yeah. And, and yeah. See, like the first, the first existentialist, right? <laughs> yeah, he is something it, like know? that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Well, I mean, he's. It's interesting to put Ecclesiastes in conversation with the Psalms and and Amos because, on the one hand, I think you could read, and I've been thinking about this a bit lately, and trying to write a bit on it. Um, kind of think about Ecclesiastes, Kohelet in Hebrew, this speaking voice um, called Kohelet. You can almost see see him as a disaffected psalmist, you know, who's who's prayed these psalms and it just hasn't worked out for him. Um, in fact, some people have argued that a psalm like 39 um, 
you know, uh, is it could be it could have been said by Kohelet, you know. Um, yeah. It's just, uh, you know. You know, that's interesting. Know my, and, you, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, it's interesting you bring that up. Like, it does affect the psalmist when you think about in the traditional sense of David being the author of the psalms and Solomon being Kohelet, like, almost like yeah. a, a son rejecting the father or not you know what i mean like not <laughs> right not agreeing right. with the way of the dad like right right pipe dreams dad you know this is another way of looking at it i don't know yeah it's, so i mean you could kind of see him that way and then um i mean i think there's more to say about his the, the interrelationship between ecclesiastes and the psalms but but um and then you can also see of uh, amos and ecclesiastes sort of having a robust dialogue because you know ecclesiastes is just not much about justice uh, and doesn't care a whole lot about justice and is sort of resigned about injustice. Um, just knows that there's a lot of injustice in hand and uh, in the world and there's just not a whole lot to do about it. Um, he says in chapter four, uh, I saw all the oppressions that are practiced under the sun. Look, the tears of the oppressed with no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power with no one to comfort them. You know, I mean, everybody, right. everybody sort of is, doesn't have any comfort, whether you're an oppressed or oppressor. And um, there's, there's a higher one over a higher one over a higher one. And don't be, don't be uh, surprised if you see oppression of the poor and violation of justice and right. Don't be amazed. You know, that's just what happens. Wait, you know? So Ecclesiastes is kind of resigned about this. So you can imagine him and Amos having a little bit of a robust conversation. Yeah. Amos might be in his grill and saying, he, you know, he needs to do more. But Kohelet being, is, you know, I think not only an existentialist, a real realist, and uh, maybe he's deficient in justice, but, but, but the inclusion of Kohelet in the canon of scripture, for me, says that it's an important work that ha has something to teach us. And so, so one of the things that? I, yeah, what, one of the things that teaches us, I think, is that there's more to life with God than just justice, you know? Um, Scripture is not just about one thing. It's about lots of things. Yeah. And justice is a crucial one. It's a sublime virtue. But there's other things besides justice that also have to be taken into account. Why? Because sometimes we can't get the justice we want or need, you know, and, and the world by itself is never going to give it to us. Right. The, the justice we long for is ultimately the justice of God that God will someday bring and hopefully is breaking in here and there now and then in our in the polis but also among the pious in the church as a as a as a place for god's kingdom and so forth but but the other thing that kohelet speaks to me about in terms of the kind of present covid stuff is um but but not just the covid pandemic is that you know he's he's got a very sober view not only of say justice and injustice but but just a sober view of reality and finitude I mean, I think that this is his main issue, his main beef with the universe is finitude and finitude flexed in two ways, flexed in terms of the maximum, like if infinitude to the max, which would be death and infinitude to the minimum, lack of finitude, which would be God. I mean, God's infinite. And these are these are the problems. The problem is finitude. He can't understand God. God is inscrutable. God is, you know, um, the God half the time in the book of, of Ecclesiastes, the deity. I mean, it's, it doesn't yeah. you ever use God's personal name. So God's inscrutable and humans die. And he's very in touch with the finitude and the finality of finitude. And this is off-putting to a lot of Christians who want to run quickly to resurrection. You know, only if Kohelet believed in resurrection. Actually, Kohelet's agnostic. He doesn't, he, he says he's not sure if yeah. the spirit of an animal goes down and spirit of a, but, and at the end of the book, he says the, the life breath returns to God who gave it. But even, but what Kohelet would say is, oh, look, even if you believe in resurrection, you still got to go through Gethsemane and Good Friday. And, uh, and if that's true for Jesus, how much more true is it for everybody else? Right. Absolutely. And so the finality of finitude for me helps me think about, you know, in less than a year, the entire planet has been transformed by a virus that started who knows exactly how in some market over in China somewhere. I mean, right. it, can, it can change on a dime, the entire planet, billions of people's lives transformed. I mean, almost overnight, you know, hundreds of thousands of people dead and so forth. 
how long do we think this human project's going to go on, right? It has a shelf life. The planet has a shelf life. Economies have shelf life. Businesses have shelf lives. Um, you know, institutions have shelf lives. We, we can't think that it's just going to keep growing and growing and bettering and bettering all by itself. I mean, it, there, there's a finitude to the human project. And evidently, according to Kralik, God wants it that way. You know, God doesn't want the human project to go on forever. And that's, that's a real stunning and sobering thing that, you know, COVID isn't an instance of. It's a reminder of the finitude of the human project. Economies can fall. Um, people can lose their livelihoods overnight. And that's, that's real, you know, and that's not comforting by any means, but it's, it's important to have that sort of thing in scripture that says, you know, the human project isn't all that's going on in the world. That would be, uh, that would be quite a shocking sermon to hear on a Sunday morning. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Uh, that's right. That's right. I think the purpose behind that has to do with, um, thinking about Proverbs too, as part of this tradition, but, uh, just the fear of the Lord or, or humility in general, just taking on, and not just as a, a personal uh, act of humility, like we've been talking about, but congregationally or as a whole church, having a right. sense of, of, of the fear of the Lord or humility um, than we oftentimes do. Mm-hmm. I think so. I think it is. I mean, I think there's a profound, I think the fear of God motif in, in Ecclesiastes is very much dispositional. You know, it's about recognizing your place in the universe, recognizing your place vis-a-vis God. I mean, it says in chapter five, God's in heaven, you are on earth, therefore let your words be few, you know. Um, Or there's resonance here with uh, uh, Psalm 90, you know, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a wise heart. Um, Or it's, I forget the text in in one of the epistles, you know, make, make, uh, Make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. You know, there's there's limited time on the one, hand. and that's and that's the flip side. Though I think that's the flip side of finitude for Kohel. I think it's not just a matter of I'm going to like knock you down the size and and humble you, and you don't know Jack, and you don't know Jack because God doesn't want you to know Jack. That's basically what He says throughout the book. And even wise people, He says, who think they know Jack, they don't know Jack. That's chapter right, seventeen. Right. You know, so don't listen to them. Um, so, but I think the flip side of it that's also been helpful to me in thinking about COVID is that what, what Kohelet doesn't just say, you know, life sucks and, and hard and then you die. Um, he doesn't say that exactly. He said, he might say part of that, but he also says, you know, sometimes, sometimes life's quite remarkable and full of joy and you should enjoy while you can, when you can, as God allows you to yeah. have joy. And so seven, eight times throughout the book, there's kind of an, an you know, odes to joy peppered throughout. And the joy that he commends is very circumscribed. You know, it's the kind of thing where, you know, enjoy the food uh, and enjoy your, your work, which he calls toil, because he wants to be clear that, you know, it's not always enjoyable. Right. But if you can't enjoy your toil that you're toiling at, enjoy your spouse, enjoy your your family, enjoy food and drink and these sorts of things. Don't just taste the coffee, you know, savor the coffee, that kind of thing. And to me, that sort of, that sunk into me during quarantine when I'm sitting around my dinner table for the first time in five years with all my kids gathered at home, yeah. you know, every night. Now at times it was too much. At times, we, <laughs> you know, at times you wanted some break. You wish you weren't all in the same house all the time, but but that was that was that was uh, also precious opportunities to be together, moments of of family joy, being together, and that's the kind of recalibrated joy that that Kohelet speaks of, and that too is the gift of God. He says yeah. uh, these small pleasures, the glory of the ordinary, like Bill Brown calls it, or and and I think actually in the if 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 Kohelet and and Amos started talking. Um, I think we'd eventually do something like, you know, a, a recalibration of justice too. Yeah. That justice may not be, you know, the entire, you know, universe, but but small justices matter. Justices in this yeah. house matter. Justices in our churches matter. Justice in this community matters. This this 
city, township, whatever, and work out from there. But but recalibrate measured according to the finitude of our of our limitations. I wonder if um, if the Sermon on the Mount might not be a good place to start to look for that conversation taking place with Jesus in in the fact mm-hmm. where he says, you know, consider the lilies, don't worry about tomorrow. Uh, and it's a real sense, like be in the moment that you're in. Yeah. He yeah. also talks about justice. Uh, you know, and he talks about love, love of enemies, talks about turning the cheek, talks about justice right. in different ways that it's right. both internal and, and social. You know, yeah. and don't say in your heart, you know, don't, you know, don't murder, but you can't be angry in your heart either. But then also, right. uh, you know, if, if you have something wrong, if there's some kind of conflict between you and your brother, you leave your all, leave your gift at the altar and go fix that. So there's, there's in, internal and external and, and joy and, and not worrying, but also, you know, all the other elements that you've been talking about, justice. And yeah, stuff. I like it. I like it. And see, I think that's the kind of thing, if we, if we are immersed in scripture, one of the things that we, I think, see is the, is the never-ending points of interrelationship and interconnection between books of the Bible, within Testaments, across the Testaments, and so forth. And we don't have to fall into kind of old, stayed and unhelpful categories like the old testament is just sort of background information right. or something like that but it's all it's all formative you know it's all can be formative for the life of faith and and all, all all also all potentially useful and so here's here's ecclesiastes which maybe some people don't like very much or would strike them as off-putting and yet here it is in the time of covid i think is remarkably prescient about um you know the 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 frailty of the human of human science for heaven's sake you know the frailty of things that we put our trust in and at the same time the endurance of things that we oftentimes underestimate good food with friends and family as a as a foretaste of and a gift of god you know that's a great point i think that's a that's i love that i love that image i love that that conversation that you and i love the idea that you're talking about the books of the bible in conversation with each other you know that's one of the whole points we call this the dialogic disciple podcast yeah that's it that's it that we're being drawn into um and i think that's a good note to end on brent thank you so much for this conversation this was a fun little romp through some of the old testament texts and and talking about how these things might apply to us as christians during these times that we're in um, I think you're yeah. taking the time to, to be with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks again for having me on. Always fun to chat and good to see you. <laughs>